Today in the garage, we have Allison Craig and Brian Ebert. Allison Craig is a founding partner of Posner Craig Stein, which was developed this year. Prior to that, Allison was a partner at Lockyer Campbell Posner. In 2007 and 2008, Allison represented nine individuals at the inquiry into the pediatric forensic pathology in Ontario who were convicted of homicides as a result of the flawed pathology work of Dr. Charles Smith. In the years since the inquiry concluded, several of those convictions have been quashed by the Ontario Court of Appeal. Allison has successfully conducted hundreds of trials at both the provincial and superior court levels. She specializes in defending people charged with murder, sexual assault, and drug offenses. She has successfully defended persons accused of offenses ranging from mischief to murder. Allison was recently featured in Amazon Prime's docuseries called The Unsolved Murder of Beverly Lynn Smith, where she successfully defended accused Alan Smith. In addition to her trial work, Allison has argued conviction and sentence appeals at the Summary Conviction Appeals Court for Ontario, the Ontario Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. Brian Ebert is the founder of Be Defended Professional Corporation. Brian's central focus is criminal trial work and appeals. He assists clients before various disciplinary tribunals, most commonly before the Law Society of Ontario. He also maintains a practice in civil litigation, specializing in matters that intersect with criminal law. Prior to that, Brian worked at the law firm of Lockyer Campbell Posner, as it was then, since 2009, where he conducted numerous trials and appeals. Whether you're driving your 200 series convertible Beamer, shredding your Martin solid top, or drafting a charter motion, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to me. Allison, Brian, thank you for being in the garage today. Thank you, Marco. Thank you for having us. So just before we get started, I, I always remember... Uh, Brian, how you and I, one of our very first interactions, if not our first interaction, and I, I want to see if you, if I can draw your mind back to um, our meeting in the lobby of the Toronto West Detention Center. But it, it, it's it's a vivid memory in my mind. Yeah, I, uh, I I don't know if that was the first time we met. I had definitely seen you around. Yeah, I, would... I don't think it was the first time either, but it was a memorable early interaction. I missed that jail. Um, all of these jails have unique smells and architectural styles that are sad and mostly defunct. Um, but yeah, it, it was towards the end of my articles at Lockyer Campbell Posner. So that would have been, I, I guess, uh, like the summer of 2012. And, uh, I, I didn't know if I had a job uh, after articles at the firm and I had been talking with, um, a duty council office and I had a pretty, uh, firm thing, uh, with, with one of those offices and I was pretty excited about it. And you and I just got to chatting. We were waiting there in the sunny, bright Galleria of Toronto West, that holding pen where they liked to hold lawyers until they, they could see their clients and, and you came in. And I, I remember you, you asked me bluntly, do you, do you want to be doing guilty pleas and bail hearings for the rest of your career or, or do you want something more? Uh, no slight to duty counsel. We, we all rely on them. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, that, that kind of steered me to, uh, I mean, that, that, was a big, that, that was a big moment for me. It's, it's not, it wasn't meant to be a slight to duty counsel either. I, I have a lot of respect for duty counsel. It's actually a very hard job I think it gets a lot of um doesn't get enough uh, credit for what it is because they deal with people who they don't you know they come in they're hostile to them they're offering their expertise bail hearings specifically to get people out they're working large files large number of files a day and uh I just think that it's a when you make that decision to go to duty council that's what you're 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 lining yourself up for and if that's something that you want to do, then you do it because the duty council, there's a big divide I see between the duty council who really, really care about the work that they're doing and the ones who are just using it as a stepping stone to something else because the ones who care make a difference. I I think if you're going to do duty council, you know, as, as a uh, perhaps advice to younger council who are in the exact same position that I was, if you're going to do duty council, you're, you're much better off both to yourself and to those accused that you'd be assisting, if you make that switch after, you know, spending at least a few years in the trenches and seeing what the rest of the, the process is like. Oh, I agree. And so was it Allison who offered you a job? 
I mean, you you were top brass, or you know, amongst the top brass back. It all sort of boils back to to, to Richard Posner. I, I but, but you know that that was a collaborative firm. I I don't know. You know that better. It always boils back to Richard Posner. <laughs> Everything in life boils back to my dear partner Richard Posner. But yes, I think I was a, a strong influence. So Allison. How long have you been at that? Well, you started your career at that firm, Lockyer Campbell Posner. I did. I articled there in 2000 and, oh God, four. And I was there ever since, uh, right up until last, or this February when we started our new firm. And shed some light on what that experience was like as a, as a young lawyer. As a very young lawyer, it was scary as all heck uh, because James Lockyer, of course, anybody coming out of law school, he's, you know, the king. Uh, and so I was terrified to be on. I remember once when I was, I was either an articling student or a first year lawyer and James had a, an appearance for a client in Goderich and it was the worst snowstorm in a hundred years. Um, but I was determined to make it. I was terrified if I didn't. So I drove for about eight hours through farmer's fields and closed roads and the OPP stopped me several times because I was driving on <laughs> highways that were closed. But I was determined to make it because I was so scared that I would miss James's appearance. And of course, I got to the courthouse and it was closed, as was the entire city of Goderich. And I was snowed in there for three days. But um, <laughs> I learned... Was it a speak to? Or? It was a speak to. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely was a speak to. But I was determined. Um, but it was a wonderful place to work, obviously. Now, just as Phil Campbell, Richard Posner and James Lockyer are three of the best well, that's uh, why I was asking that question. And what about for you, Brian? Uh, how was it working uh, with with those individuals? I mean, you know, it's there aren't really enough superlatives. I mean, I mean, I uh, if I have any skill as criminal defense counsel now, um, you know, it's in large part due to my exposure. Um, to those uh, three guys and, and to Allison as well. And That's I, no, but and, and I, I, in all sincerity, like the thing about that firm is it really felt like, I mean, lawyers talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, there was a bit of that. Like I, I felt as if I had snuck my way in to a brain trust of sorts. Uh, I mean, the, Richard James and Phil were, were all phenomenal lawyers, but we know that, but there's a lot of other fantastic counsel who um, were in that firm. Lance Beechner, Gabriel Grosstein, Alexandra Mamo, Alex Ostroff, Katrina, now Justice Katrina Verner, Eva Tache Green. Um, boy, oh boy, it, it was a blast. It was, uh, it, it was great to be around all of them. I, just, I find it odd that I'm noticing that there are a lot of job opportunities at various law firms across at least Toronto or Ontario um, right now. And I find that, is it some, do you guys know if it's something that younger counsel are steering away from or not going to firm? Or what do you have to say about that, Alison? Do you have any comment on that? I don't, I've noticed the same thing. Um, my sense is a lot of people when the pandemic hit um, sort of steered in different directions from criminal law because uh, the courts shut down for so long, everything became... Um, a lot more stressful than it used to be. So uh, certainly I know of a lot of lawyers who either steered away from criminal defense or have crossed over and become crown attorneys. I mean, that is very common. I can't, I've lost count of how many excellent defense lawyers have joined the crown's office in the last couple of years. Um, so uh, hence all the job openings. Well, there's a little bit of a, what we call a brain drain, I guess, from the defense bar going yeah. to either the crown's office or to other jobs. But I'm just wondering, we, we have a significant number of recent calls. I see, you know, through the recent call committee of the Criminal Lawyers Association, as well as through some other, uh, you know, Twitter and everything else, that um, some of these people are working for themselves early on, mm -hmm. starting their own practices early on. And yet I'm noticing that there's these opportunities to work at a firm. Now, I started off at a firm. You both started off at a firm. What do you recommend? Is there a benefit to working at a firm in those young young years? Or is it, should, should people look to, from a business perspective to just open their own practice? I never would have had the guts to go out on my own right away. I wouldn't have had the foggiest idea what I was doing. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's tremendous benefit to working at a firm, both just because you learn and you have mentorship, um, but you also develop relationships so that when you do decide to go out on your own, if you do, 
Um, you've got referral sources and mentors to go to and that sort of thing. So I certainly think there's enormous benefit to working at a firm first. Uh, but if you're going to go out on your own right away, make sure you have an office in a chambers where yeah. you have senior lawyers around to mentor you. Brian? I can't imagine starting by myself. No. Uh, you know, even if you're in a chambers, you're not accountable to your to your principals to your superiors so you, you can disregard whatever advice you get from chambermates and you know you live with those consequences um yeah i i it's not even like there's there's positives to both scenario i i think if if you're junior counsel and you have any opportunity to work with to work for more senior counsel even if they're not very good, uh, like respectfully, <laughs> like at, at least you can see that. At least you have firsthand observation to, to understand that's how I don't want to run my practice. But it, it's, yeah, I, I mean, the importance, I, I'm biased because I, I have that benefit of being around, you know, such brilliant lawyers, but I, I can't imagine not having that. Do you think there's a, a change in the reasons behind people's interest in getting into criminal law? For instance, I don't know, I got into criminal law because I just, I want to, I like to work. So to me, working at a firm was the benefit of, I didn't have to worry about the, the paycheck was coming and I can just focus on the clients. Like obviously I worked on files well beyond what my bosses would have liked in terms of money because you put in the hours to do a good job. I think we're trained that way. But if people are coming into this profession for different reasons, like, to make a living or pay off a debt and so on. Is that changing the motivation maybe? Yeah. If you want to come into this to make a living and pay off a debt, um, that's going to be hard in those initial years. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I talk about this with the, the people that work for me. I, I sort of chart, you know, you can actually chart, the graph of your salary versus experience over time. And I find that in criminal law, it's a much steeper ascent in the initial years. You, you, criminal associates, uh, criminal, like junior sole practitioner lawyers, both, um, you don't make a lot. Uh, and But you can, the opportunity is there. And I, I think that might be a big part of the reason why those junior lawyers are going to other opportunities. And there's just such a, a steep learning curve when you first start. Um, you know, in order to make money, for the most part, I think you have to be doing a good job, at least in the long run. The way you make money is to become a good lawyer. And the way to become a good lawyer is to learn from good lawyers. Um, so I can't stress enough that if you have the opportunity to work at a firm, you should. And then there's the whole business side of things. Like I know... Um, junior lawyers who went right out on their own and they spend their whole time trying to do legal aid billing and, you know, all the business side of things and they don't have the time to devote to actually practicing law. Yeah, I remember when, when we went out on our own, I, I went out on my own and a bunch of people from the firm where I was at, well, we all went out on our own at the same time. If you fell behind on those legal aid bills, then everything started to fall behind. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as a young lawyer and doing legal aid. Legal aid accounts are difficult to do to begin with. And, um, you know, there's this presumption that if you don't do them right, you're leaving money on the table. Right. And so you have to be meticulous about doing it. And if you just let those bills accumulate, then you start falling behind. To get back to your question about, you know, the, those first years, I mean, and, and whether lawyers should start and can start successfully straight out of the gate as sole practitioners. I mean, there's the law. There's so many things you need to learn. There's the law. There's client management. But the business is a really big part of what we do, especially as partners in firms, as people who have started firms, as people who are sole practitioners. I mean, you're, you're not going to make it unless you have a firm handle on the, the ins and outs of the business side of the practice, which some people find boring, some people find cumbersome, but like it or not, um, 
it's a necessity of what we do. And the building of the business, right? When you, you know, walk out of your articling and start right away, um, where are you getting clients? That's a whole lot of stress and it's a difficult thing to do. So if you start off at a firm, you build relationships with clients, you build a client base. And then if you go out on your own, you, you hit the ground running because you have a, a client base to take with you. So to, to get back to your question about you know, why are people fleeing this practice, this, you know, what we do now, why does it seem like it's more prevalent during COVID? I, I speculate that what Allison just said is a big part of it. You know, previously, Articling students, first year, second year, third year associates are in a courthouse every day. You do a good remand, you, you get you know a little train of people following you out of the courtroom. Can, can I go with you? I like the way you adjourned that matter. Mm. That doesn't, people can't follow you out of a Zoom court. I mean, I guess they could look up your name, but it's, I think that that's an added challenge. I, well, it's obviously when you're in person, it's also the way you carry yourself, how you look, how you dress, like all that's lost on Zoom, in my opinion. Yeah. But one, I, I think as criminal lawyers, we look at it from uh, going back to Allison's point about doing good work. If you're a good, you do good work, you're gonna make more money because you, um, you're getting the results, or at the very least, you're putting in that effort for your clients. As criminal lawyers, we look at criminal litigation where you have to get into court and actually do the work. As a young lawyer, you have a lot of matters. When you're working at a firm, you get handed files. You have an, a certain level of experience. But if we look at our colleagues on the civil side, they basically litigate what I call in the abstract. They don't actually, like not very many cases go to trial. Like you'll find a civil lawyer who's been a lawyer 10 years and never seen the trial court. Sure. And... Yet they were able to become successful practicing like that. And so if that's how we're trained in law school, as a, I could see why a young criminal lawyer might say, well, I can just research the offense, research the law, work it through the system, and, and you know, if it goes to trial, we'll deal with it. The same way our colleagues at the civil bar do it. Allison? It's so much more than that. I mean, I have, back in the day when we got to sit in courtrooms and watch other things, you see some of the most disastrous cross-examinations, <laughs> for example, where you're basically, you know, the, the poor lawyer is doing the Crown's job for him with a horrendous cross-examination. Things like that. You don't learn in law school. You don't learn from reading textbooks. You don't learn from looking up the offense in the code. Uh, there's so much more to being a good lawyer, uh, and you need someone to teach that to you. That was a setup question, obviously, because I knew somebody was going was gonna to bite on it. But I think it's because as <laughs> criminal defense lawyers, our competition, as I see it, is in court. So if somebody sees Allison... And the job that she does in a cross-examination or get a result that she does, it's because she's in court litigating it. Unlike in the civil bar where the litigation is kind of, it's, it's percentage-wise, much less. So our, our direct competition is litigating in court. And so you have to get in court and litigate. Yeah. That's why they always ask you, oh, well, what's your win percentage and what's your loss percentage, <laughs> right? It It's sink or swim, right? Like you can make it through law school, you can even make it through articling and think you've got it, or the converse, right? Like, you could make it to the end of articles and think that you don't know how to put one foot in front of the other in court, and then you get in a courtroom and you get this buzz. As soon as your client enters his plea, not guilty, it's like... It just becomes electric. Uh, your every decision you make from that point, obviously leading up to it, but particularly after that plea is in, it has such a massive consequence. And I've seen it both ways. I've seen people who are brilliant solicitors, brilliant legal academics, and then you you put them at a podium, you put them in front of a a vulnerable civilian witness, and they're just kind of fumbling and i and i've seen the like the direct opposite as well people who really struggle with the law who really rely on other lawyers in their chambers other lawyers in their firm to sort of put together the legal arguments which is fine right that's why we have barristers and solicitors or 
that's why England does. But, <laughs> you, you know, we have people within this field who, who specialize in that way. So I, I think that's, I don't know, I, I, probably uh, an optimistic point for some young, young lawyers and, and maybe the opposite, opposite for others. You don't know your strength as criminal defense counsel until you're in those trenches, until you're doing those trials. And, and there's no way to prepare for that. Sometimes, you know, we used to have more opportunity to sit in court and observe. I, when I was young, uh, during between set dates or you're at Old City Hall or you're at College Park, you had to wait for a video court to start or whatever. You could easily go sit in a trial court, watch somebody go through a domestic trial or something uh, at the provincial court level that would assist you in at least making some observations. And so here's an example. The very first trial I ever did was, uh, it was a minor charge. It was a mischief or a theft under or something. Um, and it was, of course, one of James's clients. And off I went to court. We ran the trial. The client got up on the stand to testify and full-on confessed. <laughs> and I uh, just about died of a heart attack. Uh, and so I learned the lesson. You know, you have to put a lot of work into preparing your clients before they testify. That hadn't really occurred to me. You know, we ran through it a couple of times, but I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, and those are the those are the kinds of things that I think you need mentors to to teach you. Allison, what? How did you get into criminal law? Like, what what motivated you into this area? So in high school, I was um, a bit of a badass. I hung out with the wrong crowd. I got myself into a lot of trouble just because I was bored and I was a rebel. Um, but I was in the enhanced program, so I never got into any trouble. I never showed up to school, but they never called my parents. Nobody cared. Um, all my friends that I hung out with um, had very different backgrounds from me. And um, when it was time for me to pull up my socks to get into university, I did. It was easy because I had the support, but my friends um, didn't. And so a lot of them ended up getting involved in the criminal justice system and immediately became labeled bad people. Um, criminals. I knew that's not who they were. They had different circumstances and different backgrounds than I did. Um, and that bothered me. So I decided to get into criminal law to defend them. Brian? I went to law school um, knowing that I wanted to do one of two things. I either wanted to be an environmental lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, so in my mind, those are the only two things that I could do after law school that mattered. Um, I went to University of Victoria, which I, at the time was the only law school that had a co-op program. So I had the chance to do like three different four-month co-op terms, one of which was at the uh, British Columbia Ministry of Environment. And... Um, the people there were so nice, the building was so nice, and the work that we did um, was important and soul-sucking. It, it, so, uh, it was so frustrating to see the efforts of hundreds of hours of, of people who really cared about um, environmental regulation and protection and climate change, and then the government changes. You get a new, um, you know, leader of the province, a new head of the ministry, and, and all of those efforts just get dashed. And I, I found that really um, discouraging. So, uh, yeah, I worked in environmental law for a little bit. And um, I, after that, I determined that I, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to stomach a career in environmental law because I think I'd get really disgruntled. And um, like there's no law. disgruntled yeah. criminal lawyer. But, but you know, the, like <laughs> the thing is, like, yeah, but it's, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it more about, you know, how we deal with losses and stuff. You deal with losses. Talk I, about it now. I, 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 I had a really rough one yesterday. You know, I, I did a bail review that I really felt could win. I, I you know, my surety was great. Um, I, it was tough. There were three prior recognizances that had been breached so this was his fourth uh fourth crack at it uh so I, I had an uphill battle but even even when i was getting judgment i thought i was winning until <laughs> it just it took a turn and that uh it it sucks but you know for all of the other times you you, you get your guy bail you win that trial i mean those those experiences 
carry you through. And even when you lose, it's worth doing. I mean, that, that's why I wanted to do environmental or criminal, because it was important to me if I'm going to do this career for my whole life that I believe that what I'm doing matters. And it, it does, unquestionably does. Allison? I still don't know how to deal with losses. I uh, They keep me up at night frequently. But another good reason to have mentorship and a law firm around you, because you talk it through with people. I always do. If I have a bad loss, it really upsets me. I talk it through with my, my colleagues and um, inevitably come to the conclusion that it wasn't anything I did. It was, you know, terrible facts or whatever. Um, it's really important to talk those things through because they can build up and uh, – really weigh on you in a bad way we say that like i mean it's it's you you say that and it just strikes me how obvious that is like i can't imagine that lawyer who's got their home office and they're alone yeah and they get that judgment and it crushes them i guess you get on the phone to mom or something or like call up your buddy but like you know out of firm like even yesterday that was by zoom but i'm in a chambers I've, i've got the, the folks there who, who work with me and I of, of course first thing you first thing you do you get on the phone get in a breakout room with the client get on the phone with the surety talk it out with them and then you you heal your wounds in the offices of your your chambermates of of your firm mates it's so I can't imagine not having that I think no. I would be a wreck at this point if I if I didn't have that well the pandemic certainly affected our ability to do that for a bit but hopefully it's starting to get back a little more yeah yeah what do you miss about those early days brian Uh, i mean the i i was saying to to you before marco I, i mean one of the reasons i have enjoyed this podcast so much throughout the pandemic is because for me it's it's not a perfect substitute but it's an effective substitute for the lawyer's lounge. I, I miss that grubby office at Old City Hall, that closet at a thousand Finch, that uh, sterile cubicle at 2201 Finch. I mean, those were, um, I miss that. I miss seeing, like, there's it, kind of two, two ways about it. I, I miss seeing other lawyers every single day of the week. Um, but on the other hand, it is nice to just, I, I, I bike to the office. I, I get this beautiful view of Lake Ontario every morning. I get a bit of exercise and I, you know, I, I don't miss driving home from Brampton. Um, but I, 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 it's, you know, it gives and it takes, right? I, I miss, uh, I miss the collegiality and the community that, that existed because of these unnecessary speak to appearances that we had to drive out to I attend do, at. I do too, but I, I don't remember in the old days, pre-Zoom, when did I get any work done? Like, yeah. I, I was in my car <laughs> all day before and after court. When did I do work? I can't fathom when I, <laughs> I ever did that. 4 a.m., 9 p.m., so, yeah. like you just fit it in. Well, it goes to what you were just saying about the collegiality and talking to people. It's it, You have your office, you have people in your workspace, but it's also, in sometimes it's, it's interesting when you just bump into people at court because I might not get something. I'm thinking of something. I might say, oh, let me ask Allison Craig about this. But if I see her at court, I say, let me ask your opinion on this. Yep. And all of a sudden I got this opinion that I would have not otherwise had or thought to go get because of just by bumping into somebody. Going back to what Allison was saying before about the community and the importance of younger lawyers working with more senior lawyers, you know, one of the reasons why I'm in the chambers that I'm in, 55 University, University Chambers, uh, which which is run by Stephen Bernstein, Adam Newman, Gary Grill. Um, one of the reasons I'm there is precisely that. You know, Stephen Bernstein, he's always, you know, pacing around the lawyer's lounge at 361 University or, or Old City Hall, just sort of working through his legal argument. And I remember one time, I think I was like a, I don't know, a five-year associate or something. And he just come, we'd seen each other around and he comes up to me and he's just running by this idea. And I'm just, I was, I was like floored at how flattered I was. Like, here's this, you know, giant of the bar who's coming to little me as, and I, I don't, I, I can't honestly say he, he 
you know, cared, cared what you yeah, said. Yeah, but he, you need somebody. <laughs> no, Stephen does, he, though. He, he does. He he likes to talk through his cases. And if you do a case with him, you realize that's how he is. And he, he's very respectful to other counsel. Um, He's very respectful to other counsel. I'm laughing because I just remembered I'm, recently I accidentally sent him a text. To, I was meaning to say to another Stephen. And I said, hey, buddy. And, da, 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 da. and he just responded, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. But, and then he provided me an answer. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, Stephen, I would never call you, uh, you know, a respected member of the bar. Hey, buddy. I uh, just, I would say Stephen, right? You know, in a nice way. But he does care about, especially people's opinions, younger lawyers' opinions, all lawyers' opinions. So it's nice to have, that. I like that too. It's, to, you can't get that on Zoom, right? right? Because you got to, start a zoom call you, you got to email someone the zoom coordinates it becomes very formal can mm-hmm. we have a meeting at 10 30 a.m on tuesday to talk about this issue mm-hmm. you're never going to do that when you're trying to work through a legal argument and you need somebody right there and that you just walk around the chambers and find the first person whose door is open and ask them for five minutes you're definitely not going to do that to commiserate about a loss no no and, and another thing about um everything being on Zoom now, um, in addition to working with good lawyers when you're a young lawyer, the other best way to learn is finish your set date appearance and then walk down the hall and sit in a trial court right. and watch senior lawyers do their thing. And that, that's not available anymore, right? You do your set dates on Zoom and then you get to work or whatever else you have to do at your desk and you don't get to just roam around the halls of a courthouse and watch good lawyers do their thing. And even when you're watching, if you decide to watch them on Zoom, it's kind of still not the same. Right, and you wouldn't even, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to really look to find a good trial to watch. I mean, for a while there, I guess they were posting dockets, but yeah, it's just not the same. The most effective advocacy is, in my opinion, not on Zoom. I agree. I don't care how great you are. I mean, maybe for appeals, it's different, but for trials, you want to see what's happening, the the body language, what's how the lawyer's conducting himself in the courtroom. It's a dance, right? Right. Like the movement in the courtroom, it's, it, you it's know, theater. It, yeah, it, it depends on the type of lawyer you are. It, it depends, you know, different people see value in different aspects of our job. But there's no doubt the little things, the timing, when, when and how you move to the podium, how you hold the podium, how how you uh, your posture as you're delivering your submissions, who you're making eye contact with, how you angle the podium. You know, it sounds a little bit silly, a little bit obsessive, but these, especially in a jury trial, I mean... It's not obsessive at all. John John Rosen used to do Saturday morning lectures primarily geared towards everything you just said. And, you know, I people laugh at me, but in jury trials, I bring motions for where I want the podium. Like if the Crown says, no, well, you're going to cross-examine. Like I had an argument with the Crown in a recent jury trial that I couldn't do my closing address from standing in front of the jury. They wanted me to do it from the middle of the courtroom. They didn't want you to be too close. Too close, exactly. <laughs> no, and they didn't like that That I had my back to the crown and that the jury couldn't see the crown. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this is what I'm going to do, and if you have a problem with it, then you raise it with the judge, and judge can decide. Yeah. But those things matter to, uh, to me. The thing I wanted to get to is when we were talking about the losses, it's it's funny because you, Allison said that the losses, they kind of stick with you. They do. Yeah, they still do after yeah. 17 years. Yeah. yeah. They stick. You, you remember them. And then the wins, like we're going to get to it, especially this Alan Smith case that we mentioned in the opening. The wins are great, but they're a little more fleeting. On to the next. Right. You hear the words not guilty, you go home and you start preparing for the next day's but, trial. So I just want to talk about this Mr. Big case, um, Allison, because you know the Alan Smith case, if, if nobody's seen the documentary on Amazon, I really recommend that everybody watch it because Canada is very unique in its use of Mr. Big operations. And when we see the Alan Smith case, uh, it is exactly the prototypical case where the Supreme Court would say the behavior of the police was abusive. So, Allison, how did you get involved in that case? And it's funny, just while you say Canada's um, unique in this, just for context, after the um, documentary came out, I obviously had a lot of people reach out to me from all over the place, but I had a retired police officer from Texas, of all places, 
reach out to me and say, oh my God, I can't believe they're allowed to do that in Canada. Okay, if something's not okay in Texas, there's definitely a problem. Um, but anyway, so we were contacted by um, his former lawyers that had done the preliminary hearing and his, you know, helped him out the first time he was charged. Um, and they had a conflict and had to get off the case. So they called James and we took it over. And I'll never forget the day we, we walked into their offices, um, me and Joanne McLean, they said, this is going to be the case of a lifetime. And, you know, we said, okay, fine. Tell us about it. They were absolutely right. It was the case of a lifetime. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, if anybody has Mr. Big uh, cases come across their desk, be prepared for a lot of work. I bought a chair specifically to sit and listen to hours and hours, like hundreds of hours of recordings. So, yeah, prepare yourself. Just for the record... Like that, Allison and Joanne were counsel, but it's like a full firm oh, yeah. effort. I sat days in Allison's chair. Um, I, I've been involved in that case in a number of ways. I've, you know, I, I was speaking with Al on the phone. Uh, you know, it, it felt like more than my wife sometimes. <laughs> um, it, it's, yeah, like the, 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 I think it's impossible to properly convey the resource intensiveness of uh, of a case like that. I don't think it's impossible to convey. the The investigation is several months long. Yeah, that one was about a year. A year. There you go. It was a year long, and officers are setting up um, meetings with the target. They're all being recorded. What's the runtime? I remember you know all the stats. I think it was about fifteen hundred hours in total. No client's going to have the resources to pay that, nor is legal aid ever going to fully cover that. But then on top of that, as lawyers, there's this insane captivity that we have to the information that we're listening to. I listened to every second of every record. And it was, I mean, the, the, the shtick in that was, uh, they were fishing buddies, the yeah. main undercover and Mr. Smith. Uh, and it was hundreds of hours of just dudes sitting in a hut fishing. Uh, one of them drinking, one of them getting high. I listened to every second of it. Uh, and much of which was silence at times, but. But you never know. You never know. Exactly. Right? Like and it's it's silence, but then there will be a you know a sound in the background, and you never know if that you know a, a, a party might have been manipulating right. an object that matters. And th- I think it's important. Well, it is important in every Mister Big, but you can't just focus on the specific scenarios that the Crown says are important. In Al's case, and in every case, it was the gradual development of the relationship that was important. So. I listened to every single minute of those recordings and made notes of all the random I love you man, those sorts of things. That was important because they they became, at least in Al's view, best friends and he'd never met somebody he loved as much as he loved his new fishing buddy. And so, you know, it was important to meticulously develop a, a record of the relationship. So let's talk about just for a second that that case was before the Supreme Court's decision in Hart. Yeah, actually, the judgment in Al's case was, I think, the week before, if I remember correctly. Okay, uh, but the case, the ruling, would did, was it appealed? Did it withstand uh, scrutiny? or They didn't appeal it. No, but yeah. it sounds to me, and I didn't, it sounds that it would have withstood oh, yeah. Justice Moldaver's uh, articulation of the test in heart. 100%. As yeah. to what an abusive process would be in those circumstances. And I just want to explain a little bit to our listeners, if you can, Allison, if you can shed light on the difference between how it was before heart and after heart. Well, this is, uh, I could go on a rant about this. Uh, it's not a lot different, to be say, perfectly is, honest. Is there a difference? There's not a difference. <laughs> I think there was I a, mean, it seems that there was a dis- difference in terms of procedural differences, right? Right. So now, um, if, underline, bold, italicize, if your trial judge concludes that the operation in question was a Mr. Big, then it's presumptively inadmissible and the Crown has to prove why it should be admitted, which is the opposite of the way it used to be. Um, The problem is, since the release of Hart, trial judges have been giving what classifies as a Mr. Big operation an extremely narrow definition. So basically, if it's not gangsters in a hotel room, the traditional Mr. Big as we think of it, 
heart doesn't qual doesn't apply. And so I've had all that the police have done since the release of Heart is change up the characters in these operations. They call it what truth verification or something. Right. So, so for example, I had a case not long after Heart where um, the main undercover was a, a professional. He hired our client as his driver. All of the same inducements were there: the money, the threats, the relationship, um, the need to confess to a serious crime. It was all the exact same. But because they weren't criminals, they weren't gangsters in a hotel room, the trial judge held, well, Hart doesn't apply. And the confession was ultimately admitted. Um, so something's going to have to change because all the police have done since is change up the characters. And now everybody says Hart doesn't apply and we're good to go. It seems that the only way you're going to get a Mr. Big statement excluded is if the statement's unreliable. Right. So if your your client provides a statement that doesn't con, is not consistent with the independent evidence, right? Which be, was Al Smith's case. Right, that yeah. was the main thing with Al Smith. But in terms of the abusiveness, like the case law seems to suggest as well that um, if you're, unless it's like there was that one case out of Quebec, I forget the name of it, where it was a female target and it was three bikers who basically approach her in on underground parking garage take her in a car and get her to confess about her boyfriend's drug dealing what's the problem i don't yeah, see the problem you know that to me is it stands out but anybody involved in the criminal underworld especially for a murder you're right they just change it up it's usually now business business people business people like i had one where they effectively sent in an undercover they had the business people angle and they're building their relationship and then they sent in an undercover into this guy's work and the undercover was allegedly the victim's girlfriend in russia and she came back to collect she knows that this guy was involved in the murder and she's trying to extort him for twenty thousand dollars he doesn't have the money so what does he do he goes and asks his new business friend to help him right i I think i mean well further to allison's point but to yours as well i the, the problem with changing up the scenario and and distancing yourself from the gangsters in the hotel room is I think it misses the real power of the the investigative technique, if they call it that. Like, going back to Al Smith's case, it, it was almost, in my perspective, it was almost more of a love story was, than 100%. anything else. It's, yeah. right? it's such a mind screw yeah because because the police know and in al in al smith's case there there was there was without a doubt they knew that the police were in possession just for, for those who don't know the case that well al smith had been prosecuted once previous for the same homicide and through that case the police and the crown were in possession of Al Smith's psychiatric records. Right. They knew what made him tick. They knew his buttons. They knew how vulnerable he was. Yep. So you take a guy like that who has nobody, who's isolated, who's smoking pot all the time, and is, is a very fragile individual, and you introduce into his life a friend who just by chance has the same hobby, fishing. They, right. go, they go out into a boat on the lake, early hours of the morning. They spend you know, pleasant hours in solitude with all his favorite snacks, feeding him with weed, and, and fostering this relationship. It's not about gangsters. It's uh, about you know, human connection. Exactly. Right. And going back to uh, the psychiatric records, which, by the way, the police were not supposed to have read and read anyway. Um, the way this whole thing started was a psychiatrist had once asked Al, you know, what's your one dream in life? And he said, to have my own fishing hut. So lo and behold, that's how this whole thing started. He won a trip to go fishing right, in a right. nice fishing hut, and, you know, everything went sideways from there. I just want to ask one thing I didn't understand, perhaps you can tell me, is did was there no double jeopardy concern in this case or, or what charges were what happened there it, the charges were withdrawn very early on in the first after he was charged first um I, I don't some disclosure i think had been provided but it was very early on 
Um, it certainly was a concern. Ultimately, it wasn't a concern that was successful when we raised it. But, um, you know, one of the things that happened was, first of all, most of what Al said was demonstrably false in his right. various, I, I've lost track of how many versions of the confession there were, but nearly everything he said was inconsistent entirely with the evidence. But the few things he got right uh, had clearly come from the disclosure that he'd received the first time around. Um before the charges were withdrawn. Otherwise, everything he said was wrong. And I think, so we get, you know, Mr. Big comes up on your desk and usually what happens is the Crown attorneys and the police will say, well, these are the, the relevant sessions and it's always the confession. Right. Right. And then some build up. Um, the ones where he's talking about how much he loves committing crimes. Those are always relevant. Yeah, Everything to those effect. Yeah. And, and, but there's thousands of hours beyond that. And it's in those thousands of hours that we need to look in order to try to establish whether or not the police have tapped into those vulnerabilities mm -hmm. that our clients have. And really, no one's paying for that. Let's be honest. Nope. It doesn't matter who you are. I, I, want, I, I want to go on the record in disagreement of that statement because okay, sure. I, they, uh, I mean, they, okay, they pay, but at a very, very, very low rate. <laughs> I, I, like I, as a slight sidebar, I, I, again, to, to, junior counsel to any counsel taking on these files, you know, a large part of our advocacy is to legal aid, to assisting them in understanding the exact stuff we're talking about now. 15,000 hours of audio. You, if, if you want to discharge your duty as competent counsel in defense of murder where Mr. Be Mr. Big has been utilized... You have to listen to those tapes. Every I'm, second. Yeah. Leave it to counsel as to whether they they see fit to delegate to an articling student. Even that, you, you don't. An articling student doesn't know what to listen for. Right. It, it, you you need those thousands of hours. I did to, it all myself. Through. Every second of it. Yeah. I think I and and you know a lot of people don't know that success goes a long way with legal aid. You know, yeah. you, you, they, they, the people who give you the hours, they want to know the outcomes. Yeah. So it doesn't hurt to let them know that their money's been well spent. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I'm sure everybody knows because it's always all over the media, but they want to know that their money's being well spent. And in these Mr. Big cases, what's changed since Hart, as Allison pointed to, was that now what they're doing is they're creating a situation where the target n needs the Mr. Big big person to help them get out of a scenario that necessarily potentially falsely implicates them in a murder or right. accurately implicates them in the murder. Yeah. That's typically what they're doing. 100%. Yep. And all the same inducements are there. They, right. they are provided money by the main undercover in one way or another. They're provided friendship by in one way or another. They're provided some level of threat in one way or another. It's all still there. It's just different characters and, and judges are saying, yeah, that's not a Mr. Big. Right. Like if the police are investigating you for a homicide and you want to get out from under them, like in this other case I did, the police were investigating this one guy and they were stimulating him with real homicide, was stimulating him so that he'd go back to tell his buddy, oh, these homicide cops keep coming around and accuse me of this murder. Eventually you want to get out from under that investigation. Sure. <laughs> You're going to say, can you help me get out of it? One hundred percent. Oh yeah, here's how we can do it. We can, you know, set up a false confession by our other target who's on his deathbed. That's what they did in this case. They had one guy who looked like he was a cancer patient, and uh, he was on his deathbed, and basically he was going to write an affidavit that he committed the murder. But obviously he can't do that without the details, mm -hmm. and so he's like, okay, you tell us all the details of the murder. And then he'll write it. And when he dies, we'll send that into the police. And then they'll know that the murder is dead with him. Their investigation will close and you're free to go. I mean, talk about playing on the vulnerabilities right. of these people. Of course. Like the, the, the impact to Al Smith, the, the impact. I mean, I, I know Al Smith best because of my involvement on that case and what's known from the documentary um, and beyond is he, he's continued in a civil capacity 
And, you know, what we learn from those cases, and there, there are many of them, where uh, these wrongfully, well, not, not wrongfully convicted, wrongfully charged individuals have, have then come back to the state seeking damages. What, what is painfully clear from those cases is the psychological impact that occurs. And this isn't, I, I, don't, I don't know if that impact can ever be fixed. All, all you Again. can really do is, is mitigate the, the impact and provide these people with some of the tools to, you know, to, to lead some semblance of a life. It, it's crippling. For months after Al was charged the second time, um, he would come to court and the main undercover would come to court in his police gear and testify as a police officer. And Al still couldn't believe that he was actually a police officer. He would say, no, that's the things we did together, man, there's no way. He's still like sitting in court watching this dude testify as an officer, didn't believe it. And he, I mean, he basically had to cut himself off from the world afterwards. He's, he can't have any human relationships really. Well, I mean, they tricked him into believing he was getting rid of a body. For a year. Yeah, you exactly. Know, that's and, and it's clear from the tapes, at least from what's in the documentary, that he wanted nothing to do with that and he was freaked out by getting himself involved in that. And um, the recording, which uh, much of which was played in the uh, documentary, the accidental recording by the oh. police officers, we received that recording basically on the eve of trial. That wasn't something that was provided with all the rest of the, um, the recordings. Uh, and the officers... One of them forgets to turn his body pack off and they start talking about how they realize Al thinks he's about to get murdered by them and he's so terrified. And they say, well, I wonder if that's a problem since we're about to coerce a confession out of him. Uh, and then they start planning how to lie to the judge about it. We're not Kreskin's children, Your Honor. We didn't know what he was thinking. They literally are planning on tape how to lie in court. Um, why that wasn't disclosed early on, <clears throat> I'm not so sure. But anyway... Uh, and the other disturbing thing about it, I mean, on the humanity side, uh, they knew Al was terrified and they knew that he had a, a history of suicide attempts. And on that same recording, they were making jokes about how because of what they had done to him that day, he was probably attempting suicide as they spoke. And they were making jokes about the sound that his feet would be making when it hit the wall, when they hit the wall, when he was hanging himself. Right. That, it was atrocious. That one line always sticks out to me. We're not Kreskin's children. We're not Kreskin's yeah. children. I mean, if... In my perspective, there are a few other, you know, collections of words from that case that speak to the mens rea of yeah. those police officers in carrying out what they were doing. Yeah. They knew it was wrong. I, I mean, talk about willful blindness. I mean, that... I don't think it was blindness at all. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're trying was, to, to yeah. mount that, right? Like, it's just... It's... I had... You know, I'm starting to notice now. It's they they are taking these, you know, these scenarios beyond the target. Oh yeah, I had a girlfriend of a target, and effectively, I listened to her part in the Mr. Biggs thing, and I just wrote a letter to the Crown Attorney, and I said, "I'm happy to litigate this because she's obviously not really involved. They're just trying to get information out of her. She's confessing very private." things about you know her personal integrity her health to this undercover officer for what to the purpose to find out that her boyfriend's a drug dealer right yeah in al's case again they the main undercover infiltrated himself into al's whole family he bought gifts for al's grandchildren which was the only thing in life al cared about other than fishing it was his grandkids um and they actually, there was a, a, I think they talk about this in the documentary, David Maunder. He was a right, uh, peripheral character. Yeah. They flew him in from the prairies, um, tortured him to the point that he eventually called the police <laughs> and said, oh my God, I think these crazy people are about to kill Al Smith. Uh, these crazy people being the police officers. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, they, they go above and beyond. It's not just the target. There's a lot of lives they affect. And the thing is, is that, if you have these, the the concept of these investigations are premised on the fact that this is how we can investigate hardened criminals that will unlikely speak of murders. Right. Right. So you start from the presumption that the person's guilty, almost. The oh, investigation yes. starts from the presumption that this is a hardened murderer 
And the only way we're going to get the crime or solve this crime is by being allow allowing the police to use this technique. But what it does is there's when there's innocent people involved, their whole life, they they can't believe it. Like this client I had, she couldn't believe it, and she's she had to, she went to go buy a Rottweiler as a, like a protection dog because she's she can't make friends with people. She's like I was a happy person. I went on my business. I never thought that this person was an undercover officer and it really screws with people's minds. Yeah. I, I think the one of the things that's unique about Al's case that the documentary portrayed very well is how hard they needed to work to get that, air quotes, confession, right? If, if you can even call it that. Right. They needed, I mean, it was months it was six months i think before they got the first version and, and you yeah. hear them talk uh, I, I don't i don't i don't think we're getting they, they, they yeah, had yeah. real doubts about whether they were ever going to get it and they're ramping up and ramping up and making these scenarios more extreme and huddling how do we get like talk about tunnel vision talk about, i mean the, the presumption of guilt i mean do, do you ever stop to think for a minute well, it's really hard to get this quote-unquote confession. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're pushing a bit too much. In well, fact, any reasonable person would have stopped. At that for point. the first six months, the only time the Beverly Smith homicide ever came up was when Al was uh, talking about how he wanted to sue the police for falsely accusing him of it previously. That's the only time it ever came up was when he talked about being wrongfully accused the first time. And in terms of tunnel vision, you know, for example... One of the scenarios they put Al through right before the first version of the confession was this fake robbery. You see a bit of it of the doc in the documentary, uh, where they steal forty pounds of weed. That's right. Yeah. In the first version, in fact, I think maybe in all the versions of the confession, Al says, "Well, the reason I did this is because I ended up stealing forty pounds of weed from uh, the house of the deceased." Well, where do you think he got that 40 pounds of weed from? What actually was missing from the house of the deceased was a couple of ounces. It never seemed to have occurred to the police that, hmm, this is a bit of a problem. He's saying he stole 40 pounds of weed, which is exactly what happened in our scenario, not what was actually stolen uh, and that we know to have been stolen. It, the tunnel vision was incredible. See, there's this, they, they try to testify about, the undercovers testify about how they're not given any details about the investigation because it could blow their cover, et cetera. And then, you know, and then in this one case that I was at, the whole theory of the crown was that my client offered a hundred thousand dollars to, or offered money to the hitman to commit the murder. And then when you listen to those back conversations, there was this whole conversation the undercover has with the target about what would be a reasonable amount of money to commit a murder. And they start at a million, and then they start at 20,000 is not enough. And they, they land at 100,000. And then six months later, when he tells how much what he was going to make for committing the murder was 100,000. But the 100,000 came out of the undercover's mouth. Sure. Exactly. And he basically said, I would do it for 100. So now the target's thinking, well, I have his approval. 100,000 is enough. So morally, I can tell him. You know. we're we're like right in the middle of an echo chamber here. We're we're all on the same page. This <laughs> this stuff is as bad as it can get. But I mean, to, to introduce some objectivity to the conversation, go back to what we were talking about. At you know, I'm not big on objectivity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Plus, this but, is a complaining podcast. <laughs> but but look look at what other countries are doing. I, I mean, Allison has a police officer from Texas calling her. But look at other Commonwealth nations who share justice systems or, or share, you know, the, the structure of their justice systems with ours, and they have decided this is too much. Mm -hmm. This does not meet their constitutional st standards. I mean, the fact that in and of itself should really, you know, bring pause to the Supreme Court of Canada. But, but I think ultimately, I mean, they've spoken Ultimately, the, the buck stops with the Department of Justice. I mean, when is this going to stop? How many lives need to be destroyed 
yeah. in, in order for there to be a legislated stop to this. And that's and that's how it is. You you give the police an inch, and they're always going to take a mile. Always. Right. Same with wiretaps. Same with everything. And, and this is just the next step. But the I, the concept behind it was, you know, to get a confession from somebody who wouldn't, you know, a hardened criminal who is involved in a criminal organization that doesn't speak about the unspeakable things that they do right get them to speak about it i understand that but you know you got a guy like al smith and if you look at most of the targets of these undercover investigations we only know the ones that get charged right yep who knows how many of these investigations are ongoing that you know they just tortured someone endlessly and (laughs) and never even brought i told my wife listen i'm 40 years old I, i if i make a new friend this has got to be a problem. I'm done making friends. The uh, <laughs> I'm in, done making friends. In Al's case, his uh, his original lawyers will tell you that uh, after the charges were withdrawn the first time, they specifically said to him, uh, "Al, uh, no new friends, please. Uh, be careful." And of course, Al's vulnerable as he was, didn't take that advice. But they specifically told him that. How could he? How could you know? No. He's human, right? Yeah, exactly. Everybody needs a buddy to fish with. Yep. He's lonely. He's smoking weed all the time. Like these are the targets that they're going after. Sure. Right? He People was broke. Are, yeah, he's broke. Yeah. You offer them a little bit of money, and it's great. It's a profile, right? Th- these are the individuals who they might have success in extracting an unreliable confession from. Right. When, when they target people who are not likely to provide the confession, it gets a little bit more peculiar because in the one case that I did, the one with the extortion I was talking about, the guy that they were extorting, he was a pretty tough guy himself and he wasn't going to bow to this extortion. So what he did is he took the threat of his own extortion. He didn't confess because he wasn't in, he wasn't at the murder, so he really had nothing to confess to. But he then solicited the other accused and told him, look, somebody is coming to extort me for money. I'm not paying them. I don't know what they're talking about, but if you don't give them the money, then we're going to have a problem. And so he's basically doing the extorting Mm -hmm. for the undercover on the other accused and the other accused didn't have the money. And he goes, well, I don't know what to do. And so target a says, well, you know, have some friends who have money and you want to talk to them. Maybe they can give you a job or something. And lo and behold, they walk him into the confession with the undercovers and they're using the other target as, you know, an agent to do their dirty sure. work and yep. impose the extortion that he was had the power dynamic and control. Whatever works, man. Yeah, that's, that's basically what they did with, with Maunder in, in this right. case as well. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I was thinking about that because yeah. with Maunder too, they just put him in and they walked him into the thing. And it didn't work, incidentally, because all Maunder, when they, they, were, they put the two of them in a hotel room and all, all Maunder and Smith talked about was how innocent they were and how they hoped they find the bad guy. So that backfired. But Brian, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had the opportunity to observe before they retired? I, I mean... I'll I'll preface my answer by by saying, you know, I I I grew up in my career around James Lockyer, around Richard Posner, <clears throat> around <clears throat> Alison <throat> Craig, the most esteemed. I'll just stop right now. The answer is Alison <laughs> Craig, um, I, and and Richard Posner. The the you know the it was such a an honor to be around those folks and it's an honor to be uh, still friends uh, with all of them but the answer to the question is uh is Jack Pinkowski for me I, I never saw him litigate I saw him around uh 361 just waiting for stuff to start my career was just starting when when his was ending and I I give him as the answer because in in my view I I feel like he's kind of the backbone to the the defense bar that exists today i feel like all roads kind of lead back to him and for you know for one guy to have had so much influence um i I wish i could have been around to see that in, in action somebody should create a little family tree type diagram 
leading back to Jack Pinkowski's among the lawyers that are out there and judges, I guess now they're you, a lot of them are judges. You say that I, I recently saw, I, I think it was on Gary Grill's LinkedIn. Oh, I, the I think. vintage photo. Yeah. I mean, that was that to me. I, I remember I was, but just, it felt like it was, that was, it felt like it was a little too modern for me. Cause there was people that I know more senior that would have been there. And then I also felt that, there was people in that picture that I was even surprised to see. So then it, that triggered my mind to, to this family tree. But it was quite a document because that, you're right. That was a point in time and right. perhaps a bit too late in time. But other faces in there that you wouldn't even know, like Brian Snell. It's a lawyer that, you know, that's a name that maybe not, uh, maybe a, a lot of lawyers hadn't heard of. But I mean, holy cow, was he a formidable appellate counsel who worked for Lockyer Campbell Posner for some time? I didn't even realize he, he sort of connected back to, to that vintage. I mean, it's really, um, yeah, I, it, it, I, I wish I was around that. I, I wish I, I could have been uh, sort of a, a fly on the wall of, of those chambers and a, and a, a student or a you know, civilian in, in the gallery of the courtroom where, where Jack did a trial. He also... When I started, it was like it was the biggest firm. Mm-hmm. It was like that idea of like a criminal defense firm, and it'd been around for a long time. You know, when I, I'm a nerd. Um, Allison can attest to that. Correct. I, a confirm. few years ago, I actually went on, um, you know, Wayback Machine. You know, it's a, it's a archive of the internet, of the entirety of the internet. So you can type in a URL and you can put in a website into Wayback Machine, and it shows you what that website looked like at a point in time. I already don't know what you're talking about. I did that. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. I, I did that once with, I can't remember the URL. I Whatever the URL for Pinkovsky's was, it might have just been Pinkovskys.com. And you can, it's actually quite fascinating. I mean, that that might be the best equivalent of that family tree that you're talking about. It's... um. Man, I, I, when I was at law school, when I you know was trying to find a co-op in Toronto to uh, try my you know uh, try to see if I I could exist within this world of criminal defense in the city, you know that that was that was the biggest shop um, at, at the time. It was clear from from the internet at least that's where uh, a lot of the action was was happening. Allison, same question. Now, Justice Bill Campbell. Uh, there's something about the way he spoke that was just so enrapturing. Like he's just so eloquent. I always said whenever I needed to, whenever I went to court to watch him, I had to bring a dictionary because half the time I'd never heard of all the words he was using, but he's just so captivating. And the, the minute he starts talking, you're just like kind of in a trance. Um, I just found him to be one probably the most powerful speaker I'd ever seen. So there was nothing better than, than watching Phil in action. Allison, Brian, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything that either of you would like to plug? I'll give my website, uh, bedefended.ca. If I say that now, then maybe by the time this airs, I'll have updated it to reflect the the, the other folks that are with me. But uh, yeah, that's it. I say follow me on Twitter at Law and Chocolate. You'll come for the come for the law rant, stay for the baseball rant. <laughs> uh, Allison's Twitter following is insane. <laughs> <laughs> She's an influencer. Did uh, you know? I, I think among the legal profession, for sure, if not beyond yeah, that, I think no you're doubt. on sports radio, aren't you? On sports I, I radio? do make some appearances on sports radio. <laughs> yeah, don't ask how that happened. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Marco. Thanks, Marco. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Dow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.